So names like Shakespeare or George Bernard Shaw or C.S. Lewis or Mark Twain or Benjamin Franklin or Abraham Lincoln, anybody know what those have in common? Those are names that you can often find on lists of the most quoted people in the history of the world. Actually, Jesus is always on that list. Jesus is the most quoted person uh, in the history of the world. Uh, but interestingly enough, even in secular places, uh, the, the gentleman that I introduced that I talked to a little bit before service today is often on those lists, a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther is quite a colorful guy, at least we get from his quotes, and some of his quotes are probably not so applicable for worship. He talks a lot about beer and bowel movements and that type of thing, um, so he's kind of off color once in a while, uh, but uh, he does have some quotes that are very memorable or very uh, colorful, uh, you know, even with prayer, he says, oh, if only I could pray like a dog looks at meat. Um, maybe talks about, you know, this is something that I, I want to go for. He talks about temptation in such a way. Temptations, of course, cannot be avoided, uh, but because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there is no need that we should let them nest in our hair. Or he has some very um, somewhat profound quotes as well. Uh, you know, if, if you see Jesus, if we see ourselves as only as a little sinner, then Jesus is just a little Savior. Or there's another one. This one I hadn't heard until I studied for this sermon. All the other ones were, were kind of things that I had heard about, but I love this one. God does not love sinners because they are attractive. Sinners are attractive to God because he loves them. Or there's this quote that I'm going to try to honor today. So he says, It is not necessary for a preacher to express all his thoughts in one sermon. A preacher should have three principles. First, to make a good beginning and not spend time with many words before coming to the point. Secondly, to say that which belongs to the subject in chief and avoid strange and foreign thoughts. And thirdly, to stop at the proper time. All right, so we'll, we'll try to uh, abide by that one today. So we'll get to, as he says here, get to the subject in chief. And the subject in chief is another quote that I'd like to use. Actually, I, it's a supposed quote of Luther, and that's the case. Often when someone's often quoted, they, get, they say more than they ever said because you, uh, they get credited for things they probably never said. But somebody told me that somebody said that this is what Luther said, and whether he said it or not, it's a good quote. Most Christians have enough religion to feel their guilt, but not enough to enjoy life in the Spirit. Agree with that. Let that sink in. Most Christians have enough religion to feel their guilt, but not enough religion to enjoy life in the Spirit. Whether or not Luther ever said that, that was certainly the way uh, that he lived, a religious person but dealt with guilt extremely much when he was in his youth. Uh, so much so that he even devoted himself. He said, I'm going to become a monk in part of a ways to deal with his guilt. And he didn't just become a monk, uh, but he chose what was going to be the most rigorous monastic order that he could ever choose. He became an Augustinian who were really known for, for the, the, the intense work and study uh, that they devoted 
uh, you know, they, they would have had their first service of the day would have been at 2 a.m., uh, followed by six more throughout the day. So this is only one, all right? Come back. Uh, six more times. Can you imagine that? And, and they, would, they would devote themselves. Sometimes Luther would, would just, you know, prevent himself. He would withdraw from, from food and drink. Uh, he would he wouldn't even he would withgo sleep at times or if he did sleep he would sleep on a on a stone floor. Uh, sometimes he would beat himself, whipping himself, scourging himself for what purpose? Because he had this unresolved guilt, religious, but he felt his guilt and he thought, man, if I if I hurt myself, maybe maybe then the righteous God up there won't unleash his wrath on me. And so that's what he did. Uh, he had, and yet, no matter what he did, he couldn't escape that guilty feeling. He couldn't escape the despair uh, that came with his guilt. He had a nice German word for it, Anfechtung, which meant uh, this deep despair. The way he described it was kind of think about that leaf. He said it, it's like walking going for a walk in the fall, and you hear the rustling of dry leaves. And whenever he would hear that rustling of dry leaves, he was so paranoid by his guilt that he thought the legions of hell were coming for his soul. Now, Luther lived in an era and in a part of the world that was, they had, when you think about uh, worldviews, um, they had a guilt-innocent worldview. Much of Europe did. And technically, you and I also live in a guilt and innocent worldview. I, I tend to think we're switching. Eastern thought is more about honor shame, where, hey, don't tell me, if, I don't care if you're, I'm right or wrong, but if you disrespect me, then it's, that's the big thing in Eastern thought. Theoretically, the West, Western Hemisphere in Europe, uh, builds or lives on a, what we call a guilt innocence. Uh, type of worldview, where we measure things by the yardstick of whether it's right or wrong. We, we develop laws uh, that are based on being guilty or being innocent. That's what lands you in jail. And, and so whether or not we are that or not, I, I think we prove over and over again, yeah, that's, that's part of us. I mean, how many of you do things or live by guilt. You know, your, your neighbors or your friends invite you over for a game night. You really don't want to go, but you go because you feel guilty, right? Or your nephew asks you for, for money for their fundraiser for their school. You really don't want to support it, but you do it, right? Because you feel guilty if you don't. Maybe even sometimes huh, you come to church. Maybe you came today because you felt guilty if you didn't come. Guilt is real. Even though we maybe pride ourselves as Lutherans, being built on one of, one of the cornerstone words is sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. God's undeserved love. The truth of the matter is guilt, even Lutheran guilt, continues to hang around. And it's real. 
It was also real uh, for some people that we want to talk about today, people of God that lived five, six hundred years before Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, the guilt that they experienced, though, was not necessarily self-imposed. They weren't very good at looking in the mirror and seeing their guilt. Uh, even though God had put some enemies, some powerful enemies, knocking on their doorstep as a country, uh, they never saw it. Oh, maybe, just maybe, God's giving us a wake-up call here. Maybe we should pay attention. No, they didn't do that. And so what did God have to do? He employed a prophet by the name of Jeremiah to show them their guilt. And we hear that in one little phrase from Jeremiah 31 today where, where God says this. He says, they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. They broke my covenant, though I was a husband. What was their guilt? So, so God had arranged this relationship with his people of the Old Testament. Many years ago, about 1,500 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, God's people were, were slaves in Egypt. And God went and he grabbed them by the hand. He said, I'm going to get you out of here. And, he, and God kind of visioned that like a, a beautiful courtship was starting, a great relationship uh, with the Lord. And as they, as they walked through the Red Sea on dry land, it's like they were walking down the aisle to their wedding. And when they got on the, safely on the other side of the Red Sea, God said, ah, let's put this down in writing. It's like signing a marriage license. It's, let's make this official, God said. And so he started to cut a covenant with them, not on paper, but he cut it into stone. He said, I want this to stay. I want my relationship with you to be forever. And so while God's, and, and, and he has Moses, who's the representative of the people, Moses goes up on top of the mountain, and God's making this, this covenant with them, part of which we know as the Ten Commandments, was part of the relationship where God said, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to do all these things for you. But while God's, promising his faithfulness, making his vow to his people up on top of the mountain. You know what the people are doing down at the bottom? They're worshiping another god. They're worshiping a god that they made out of gold, a golden calf. I mean, to use the picture that Jeremiah uses here, that's the equivalent of, that's the equivalent of a bride sleeping with the best man on the wedding night. And they broke, they broke the covenant that God had with them. They were guilty. And you can just hear, you can hear the hurt in God's heart as he says these, these words. Because it wasn't just a one-time act. By the time Jeremiah comes on the scene, we're... 800, 900 years down the road. And so it's just one spiritual affair after another. What God, God's people had turned their back on God. They broke that marriage. They broke that relationship. They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. And it's so easy for us to sit up here today, oh man, how could they do such a thing? 
until we realize that God also has a relationship with us. And we think about how often we say, just kind of, I mean, God uses marriage words here. How often we say, I do or I will to God. Uh, right now, there's, a, there's some churches have a tradition that on Reformation weekend, which is what we're celebrating this weekend, adherence to God's word. They'll have teens or people who have studied the truths of God's word is kind of laid out in a catechism. They get confirmed on, on Reformation weekend. And what happens when they finish that or when adults maybe finish a starting point? They maybe stand up in front of a congregation and the pastor will say, do you promise, you know, having heard the pr truths of God's word, do you promise to be faithful to God's word all the days of your life? And they say, I will. Or parents will often come up here with, with a child in hand and they'll, they'll hold that, that baby over the, the font and after being baptized, the pastor will say something, okay, that's the easy part. Now you, parents, will you do whatever you can to teach the truths of God's word to this child so that they may remain a child of God all the days of their life? And the parents say, I will. <laughs> or then I ask the congregation, I say, hey, Congregation, it's not just, we don't want them to be by themselves. It's also our responsibility as a church. Our, do you promise to do whatever you can to encourage and equip these parents in raising their child so that, that child may remain a child of God? And, we, and I ask you, and every time you say, I will. Right? Or you just think of how many times we make promises to each other. You know, to use again the picture that, that the Bible uses here of a marriage. You know, so I think it was the 94th time I stood in front of a couple a couple weeks ago for Mike and Danielle in New Jersey. And I said, hey, are you going to promise to be faithful to each other, cherish one another, and be faithful to one another all the days of your life till death do you part? And for the 94th time, guess what I heard? I will. I will. I will. I will. Those are the words that often come out of our mind mouths. And yet the words that our actions scream are often, I won't, I won't, I won't. And there again it is. Guilt. You feel it? For all the times that you said, I will, and for all the times your actions said, I won't. Guilt is real. So what do we do about it? What's the solution? That's where the situation is here. And we, God realized that his people couldn't keep their end of the bargain. And so he... He says, you know what, I still want to be married to you. I still want to have a covenant relationship with you. And so we hear once again these words from Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand uh, to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, 
and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. No you shalls or you shall nots, but five I wills, not spoken by people, but spoken by God. And you just look at those I wills, the five things that God says here. Really, the first two are linked together when he says, the days are coming that has to do with that covenant relationship. I will make a new covenant and I will make a covenant that I still want to be your God. I still want you to be my people. I know you guys messed up the first time, but I still want it. And, and that little word new is so important. I will make a new covenant with you. Not just new chronologically, but it's, it's new in quality. See, the old covenant that God made with his people there on Mount Sinai when he rescued them from Egypt, it was, it was what we call bilateral or it was two-sided. God said, hey, I want to be your God, and I'm going to fight for you, and I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to provide for you, but you're also going to do something, and you're going to do all these things to set you apart from the rest of the world. You're going to sacrifice things, and you're going to have dietary laws, and you're going to have worship laws, and you're going to have civil laws, and you're going to have laws about laws, right? And it didn't take long. You know, that very day, they're breaking that covenant, and God wanted them almost to realize they couldn't keep their end of the bargain. He knew that. It wasn't a surprise to him. But here he reiterates, I still, I will be your God. You will be my people, not based on what you will do, but I will do. I will do everything. I will make a new covenant with you, and I'll take, I'll keep every term of it. And, and you really see that come to fruition in Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed? When he gave his disciples Holy Communion, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Not some animal's blood. That's the old covenant speaking. It's me. I keep everything. And that's part of this covenant. So now what are the results that God has cut a new covenant with us? He goes on to say here, second, or third line from the bottom, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now instead of laws being something from the outside, uh, it, it becomes an outside, inf instead of an outside influence, it's an, it's an internal opportunity. Now, instead of hearing, okay, this is what you must do. You have to, you know, walk only so far on the Sabbath day, and you have to eat this, and you have to eat that. And now, now God says, no, I am going to put my law in your heart so that it comes from within. This was really the topic of Bible study this morning. We talk about delighting in God's law. That now I still will worship, not because I have to, but because I want to. Now I, I still will, will maybe give an offering to the Lord, not because I have to, but because I want to support the Lord's work, and I want to say thank you uh, to, for all that he has done. 
That's the difference that God makes. That now I delight in God's law. I want to live for him because he's written it on our hearts. And yet, isn't there still that struggle that we say, but then how come I don't always do that? (laughs) How come I still come to worship sometimes just because I feel I have to instead of I want to? How come I still maybe give an offering because I feel it's the right thing to do instead of giving it with a cheerful heart? Because this transformation that God does for us really doesn't find perfection until we're in heaven. That, that it is the, the reason we feel guilty sometimes when we do God's will is because, truth be told, we are guilty. We still have this old self that lingers. And instead of, you know, not needing a prod to serve God, we do need it. Which is why we need the second half of this covenant too. The the first half of the covenant says you will want to serve God. But God realizes part of this new covenant, you aren't going to be able to do it perfectly still. And so here, this is where he goes on to the second part. And that's why I, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Isn't that just a beautiful picture that God paints for us here? And he says, I will forgive your wickedness in such a way that I erase it from my mind. That is almost impossible for you and me. It is impossible for you and me to do. To forgive in such a way. You know, I, I can't use this illustration very much longer. Some of you don't even know what a typewriter is. But um, uh, you think of a typewriter, and I'll use, well, first I'll use the pencil illustration for those who don't know who a typewriter is. All right, but if you write something with a pencil and you make a mistake, what happens? You erase it, and then you put the right thing there. And you can see, oh, yeah, everything's right. Um, But you see that there's a little smudge, a little residue of that eraser still there. That's often how we forgive. And now for the older people who used a typewriter, you think of how you made a mistake on a typewriter, what would you have to do? You'd have to get out the whiteout and... Let it dry, and then you'd put the, the right letter there, or you'd get out the corrector tape, and you would backspace, and you'd, you'd do the error over. If you, if you meant to put a D, and you put a B, you put a D again, and then you'd backspace again, and then you put the right letter, and you'd hand in that paper uh, to your teacher, and they'd say, yep, it's a clean copy, but they could hold it up, and they'd say, oh, yeah, you made a mistake here, right? They knew you made a mistake. But when God forgives, he uses delete keys on a word processor, and he presses print, and it comes out a clean copy. As if you were a perfect typist and never made any mistake. That's how God forgives. He doesn't just say, I forgive you all your sins. He's like, what sins? (laughs) They're so gone. I mean, it is ironic, isn't it? that the only one who can forgive so perfectly that he forgets our sins is the omniscient, all-knowing God. That he chooses to not remember our sins. And that's what God gives to you in the new covenant through Jesus.
You know, there's a song that we're going to be singing at the end of service today uh, that I just love, uh, the first verse. I love the whole hymn. Um, But it, it says this, it says, I look not back, God knows the fruitless efforts, the wasted hours, the sin, the deep regrets. I leave them all with him who blots the record and graciously forgives and then forgets. Don't look back at your past because God doesn't. And maybe to end with one Luther quote, one more Luther quote is this, is that we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. This is the gospel. That I forgive you your wickedness and remember your sins no more. That is the gospel that erases our guilt and gives us life in the Spirit. Amen. May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding.